we're going through Psalms chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So, uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are going to be in Psalm 74. Psalm 74. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, raise your hand. Psalm 74. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much just for who You are. We pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus that You would just bring us right up front face to Your heart this morning. Because we want to see into your heart. David, the psalmist, was a man after your heart. He knew your heart. We want to know your heart. Lord, we learn from your word that the more we learn your heart, the more we respond with obedience to your word. And Lord, we want to be an obedient people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 74, verse 1 says, O God... Why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which, is, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have Dwelt. And so remember, the Psalms are an instruction manual for worship. They are an instruction manual for prayer. And there are a whole series of principles we've been learning in the Psalms about how to worship God, how to pray to God. First and foremost is just be real with God. And though we know, because the Bible tells us that God has not Cast off, uh, cast off, never cast off uh, the the children of Israel. He's ne- he's never cast off one of his children. Jesus says that once you're in the palm of his hand, no one will be cast out. He says in his word. Sometimes we feel like that, and rather than playing make pretend with God, the better thing to do is, as it says in verse. W- One, we just say, God, why have you cast me off, Lord? Why have you done that to me? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And so, clearly here, um, there is probably a misconception about uh, the relationship, you know, between the Lord and His children. doesn't matter. You need to be real Uh, with the Lord. Verse 3, Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. So, this is an allusion to the time where the Babylonians came in after the nation of Israel was established under King Saul. There was a series of kings uh, in Israel. There was a At some point, there was a civil war and Israel was split between the north and the south. Uh, After a few hundred years, though, there was so much rebellion uh, amongst the children of Israel. They started chasing after foreign gods. They started opening up pagans to, uh, uh, rather, temples of pagan gods. And they would open their altars up right inside of God's temple. They would put these idols right inside the temple. And things like this were happening. And prophet after prophet warned them, look, if you don't turn away from this kind of behavior, you're going to get wiped out. And that's what happened. The Babylonians uh, under Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And that's what verse 3 is an allusion to. You lift up your feet to the perpetual desolation. The enemy has damaged uh, everything in the sanctuary. 
Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up your banners uh, for signs. In other words, the enemy came in and set up their sort of pagan flags all around the place. I mean, can you imagine if, I don't know, who's an enemy of the United States now? Iran came in and overtook the United uh, Boston, and you see Iranian Iranian uh, flags all around Boston. It's like, will that get our attention or what? You know, God certainly got their attention by doing this, because all of a sudden there's Babylonian flags right in the middle of Jerusalem, and they were traumatized. And really, the effect on them was the exact effect that God intended there to be. He got their attention. And so they're crying out to him. So oftentimes in counseling, uh, a, a person will come to me and describe the great tragedy going on in their life. And I'll be just led of the Spirit to say, look, the Lord's really got your attention, hasn't he? Oh, yes, he has. And he uh, does that. He brings about tragedy in our lives uh, sometimes in order to get our attention. In order to get our attention. Why? Because He loves us. Verse 5, They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. In other words, they're just destroying everything. Verse 9, And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. Referring to what they did to the uh, temple. They have set fire to your sanctuary. That's a historical fact. They burned down the temple in Jerusalem. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. You know, you go out and, and ask people what a church is, what they think of a church. Who is the church? What is the church? And most people will tell you in the United States, well, it's that thing down the street with a steeple. And there's a couple of bells up in the steeple. And people go there on, uh, on Sunday. Sometimes it takes God destroying the physical structures and flattening it for them to discover that's not the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's the men and women who have been saved, who have been born again. Has nothing to do with a, a, a church building, uh, and so uh, it, and, and you say, look at the prophets, and and God tells them that that very thing. In fact, when Stephen was being martyred in the New Testament, he just outright he was rebuking the people who were putting him to death, and he's saying, God doesn't dwell in a temple. You can't contain the Lord of heaven and earth in a in a physical structure. Well, sometimes God has to flatten the physical structures for us to realize the church is the body of Christ, that God's temple is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not realize that you're, you are a temple um, of the Holy Spirit? And so verse 9 says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. So, there is, uh, there are seasons of times where uh, the Bible says that God was uh, silent. He wasn't speaking through his prophets. There was so much rebellion in the land. God did not bless them uh, fr uh, with. Uh, they, they, he did not uh, bless them with. Does not bless bless them with the prophetic word. Verse ten. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? So he's going on and on here. Verse eleven. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? And so uh, this is uh, the truth that God will withdraw His hand from our life if we are living disobedient to the Word of God. Just in the last a few weeks, uh, I had to, to at least suggest this uh, to a brother who was describing to me his, uh, his Christian life and he, he is clearly not aligned with the Word of God and yet he was complaining that there was no joy in his life. It was dry. He didn't feel like he had anything to offer anyone else. And 
I had to, th- I had to tell them, this is my job. My job, by the way, is not to keep people happy all the time. It's just to tell them the truth. And I had to tell them. You know, sometimes God withdraws His hand, the blessing from us, because He cannot support. He cannot support a life that is rebellion. You know, if uh, w- one of my... Uh, daughters became of age and she was off living um, a rebellious uh, life or my son went off and was living uh, a a rebellious life clearly in opposition to the Word of God. Am I going to pay their rent for them? Why would I do that? Why would God support a life that is being lived in opposition to His Word? It's only going to encourage rebellion. And, and so, uh, they didn't know, though, they, they were trying to find answers in verse 11. They're speaking really from their ignorance. Why do you withdraw your hand? Uh, they're asking God that. I tell you, all you have to do is go to the book of Second uh, Kings, towards those latter kings right before all this happened, and you will read why it was that all this destruction came upon them. Uh, they were uh, rebellious uh, to... The Word of God. And actually, Jeremiah, one of the most awesome prophets, courageous prophets in the whole Old Testament, uh, they threw the guy down a well, they mistreated him, they slandered him, they mocked him. And, and, yet, and then they wonder why all the calamity uh, came into their life. Now, calamity does not always come into our life because of sin. And you see that in the life of David when he uh, was... After he killed Goliath, uh, he had been living a life for the Lord. He was, he was righteous and Saul was uh, jealous of him and wanted to kill him. And he wound up being persecuted and all kinds of calamity happened for, in his life for ten years. And it was because he was righteous, not because of his sin. So uh, every situation is different. Uh, nonetheless, uh, in the case, Psalm 74, of, of Israel, it was clearly because of their sin that all this calamity uh, came upon them and that God did, in fact, withdraw His hand. In fact, if, if uh, the psalmist here, Asaph, had opened up the Word of God, opened up the uh, book of Jeremiah and even Isaiah, he would have been able to read firsthand why it was that God uh, withdrew Uh, His hand from them. Uh, It it says in verse 12, For God is my king from of old. Now here's here's a good recovery on his part. At some point we need to quit complaining in our our prayers and remember who God really is. We We need to quit accusing him of things even though we do need to be real and if we if we if it if it takes accusing of him of something in order to be real we should go ahead and do that but if we don't get around to the truth of what God's word says God is we're going to be in big trouble and he's turning around to the truth now verse 12 for God is my king from old working salvation in the midst of the earth you divided the sea by your strength uh, you broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. And Leviathan is a, like a big sea creature. They don't know exactly uh, what it's talking about, this word Leviathan, in the Old Testament. But it's, like a, it's not a whale. It's some sort of big, gigantic sea creature. And gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Verse 15, You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours, the night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And so what he is simply doing is he's remembering, and this is what our prayer is all about. You you know, God knows the prayer, uh, knows what we need before we even ask it, but we need to be asking it because we need to be reminding ourselves of the one that we're asking uh, of the Lord. And so he's being reminded in his spirit who God is, what he's capable of. And he says in verse 18, Remember this, that the enemy has reproached you, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. So Israel being the turtle dove, the Babylonians being the wild beast. Do not forget the life of uh, your poor forever. Have respect 
to the covenant. For the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Now, I don't want to go down a total rabbit trail now, but verse 20 looks a lot to me like what goes on in the dark places in the abortion clinics of the United States of America. Have respect for the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. All that abortion taking place behind uh, you know, behind the scene in this country, we as a people would do right to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, judge this practice. Judge our nation if it has to be for this terrible practice that is going on. The haunts of cruelty. There's grace, of course, uh, for those who have had uh, abortions, but uh, and, and that's in some of some of us in this room. It's it's part of our past. But nevertheless, as people, as children of God, we need to to stand up for righteousness and ask the Lord, Lord, stop this. Verse twenty one. Oh, do not let the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies, the tumult of those who rise up against you increases. And so this is just someone being real before the Lord. So important uh, to be real before the Lord. So verse uh, Psalm 75, Psalm 75. Verse 1 says, We give thanks to You, O God, we give thanks. For Your wondrous works declare that Your name is near. So, a 180. Asaph does a 180 here. And now he's just praising the Lord for being so near. Thank You, God, for being so near to me. See, everything that he was thinking at the beginning of Psalm 74 is just a lie. So much of what goes on in our mind is just a lie from Satan. God doesn't want to cast us off forever, as it says in Psalm 74, verse 1. He's, he's close to us. Verse 2, when I choose the proper time, this is God speaking here, I will judge uprightly. Some of your translations may say, when I come again, I will judge uprightly. Jesus said that He will come again. And He came the first time as a suffering servant. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was nailed to a cross. He was wounded. His beard was plucked out. He was spat upon. And that was the first, his first coming, his second coming, the Bible says, at the proper time, verse 275, he will judge uprightly. And this is speaking directly about the second coming of Christ, some of the, uh, the judgment on the earth. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. And I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. The horn is just represents in the Old Testament. It represents someone's strength. And, he, and so what he's saying is, don't lift up your strength as if you're stronger than God. Verse 5, do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the west, from the east nor from the west nor from the south but God is the judge he puts down one and he exalts another you know it's a wonderful thing in the christian life in the life of a christian when they come to the realization that they're not the holy spirit 
that we can't be the judge of, of people, of men and women. In the New Testament, you may remember Ananias and Sapphira. How many people remember that story? Ananias and Sapphira? It's okay if you haven't. I'll briefly go through it. But in the New Testament, uh, Jesus had ascended into heaven. There was this wonderful church. Everyone was sharing uh, their goods with one another. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira were a married couple. And Ananias uh, came to uh, the Apostle Peter and he said, oh, I, here's all my money. I just want to bless the church of God. Here's all my money. Well, it wasn't his money. It was half his money. But he said, it's, here's all of it. Right then he dropped dead. And the, the Lord struck him dead. And then his, his wife came in, not knowing what, it, what had happened. And, and Peter questioned her. And she said the same thing. Oh, yeah. We gave everything we have to the church. We just were... We're such gracious people. We wanted to... She drops dead right there. God dropped her. Uh, uh, God slew her right there. And, you know, if I would venture to guess that if we change the names and stuff and put the Ananias and Sapphira here with what they did, and you put David, who committed an adultery with a woman who's husband was off at war fighting for him. He was uh, one of his, his mighty men, one of David's mighty men, fighting for him. When she got pregnant, he tried to cover it up. When he was unsuccessful, he killed her, her uh, husband, Uriah. And if we put King David on one side with what he did and Ananias and Sapphira on, a, on the other, I, I would say that probably 100% of us would say, you need to wipe that dude out. He committed adultery and murder. And I mean, come on. They lied, but they really blessed the body of Christ. I mean, let's cut him a little slack here. But for whatever reason, there's reason that's really none of our business. God decided to slay the, the, the one and he decided to give mercy to the other. And it's a wonderful day in our life where we realize that we can't be the judge. We don't know what this person needs, what kind of chastening, what kind of discipline, what kind of judgment they need in their life, as opposed to that person. You know, I know one thing, by the way, that at this point in my Christian life, I don't get away with anything. You know, God has me on such a short leash, I can tell the, 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 you know, whitest lie that you, you probably take a poll of a thousand people, they would say, oh, well, that was nothing but a white lie. God will slam me for it. And I deserve that. Because, you know, the, the, because the Lord wants to keep me on a short leash. But, you know, I don't know, the, 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 the next guy or, or woman, who knows what they've got, done? God wants to give them mercy. It's his business, not ours. And it's not our business to sort of decide the consequences uh, of, of people's behavior. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been going through First Peter and I've just been amazed at how much of this... Uh, this epistle of First Peter is dedicated towards that very subject, towards the very subject throughout, over and over again, in so many different ways. It, it talks about uh, slaves submitting to masters, even ones that are, uh, that are cruel to you. You let God deal with them. You let, and, and, and then he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He who committed no sin, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Says the same thing with wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Even the jerks, you win them over by your conduct. You, you, you leave him to the judgment of God. God will deal uh, with him. Because, you know, what happens... You know, if, if, if my wife or my husband, you know, whatever your case may be, uh, if, if you're the one to mete out the consequences, what are you going to do? You probably, you know, the, the wonderful thing about 
the Lord. You know those, those bombs, those missiles uh, that uh, today you can actually send a missile like down a smokestack practically. They, they know the exact destination of where they're going. As opposed to 50 years ago, you send a missile and you blow up like everything around it. Well, when we try to mete out the consequences of someone's behavior, you know, I think this person deserves this, so I'm going to make sure it goes We wound up doing the latter. It was a bomb and it all just blows up and all kinds of carnage. We overdo it. Whereas the Lord knows exactly what to do. He'll send a missile right down a smokestack. And, And the consequences will fit perfectly the actions. And so throughout the book of First uh, uh, Peter, you, you, you see this. Uh, it says in First Peter 4.19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And then, uh, you know, it, it continues... And says for in chapter three it says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And you see this really throughout the uh, New Testament, this principle that, you know, let God do, be the one who exalts. Let him be the one uh, who exalts and puts down. And so uh, that is uh, what we see uh, back in Psalm as well. Again, in First Peter, uh, it says, Conduct yourselves honorable among the uh, Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation glorify God in the day of visitation. And so, verse 6 again of Psalm 75, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts the other. Verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But notice how it says in verse 8, in the hand of the Lord is that cup of judgment. Not in my hand. It's not for you and me to hold the hand of judgment. It's in God's hand. You know, we sometimes we, you know, we see some government or some political party or whatever, and we just, if it was up to us, we'd just nuke them. But God is so much more long-suffering than we would ever be in, in, in uh, a thousand lifetimes. Verse 9, but I will declare... Forever I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. This is God speaking now. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Psalm 76. We just passed the halfway mark. The Psalms. Psalm 76. In Judah... God is known. Now, Judah is the basically what you would call southern Israel. It's the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The ten tribes went up north, basically apostatized, meaning they completely turned their backs on God, started to worship other gods, including Baal. Uh, Judah, though, had a history uh, of of kings where uh, there were actually many good kings who followed the Lord. And what a wonderful statement this is. In Judah, God is known. You know, there's many countries in the world you could absolutely not say this of. You know, we fasted and prayed last Sunday for the voice of the, with the voice of the martyrs, the International Day of Fasting. There are countries where, again, we talked about it, there's only a couple hundred Christians left in the entire country. You cannot say, for example, of Somalia. In Somalia, God is known. The, 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 the literally, uh, only a couple hundred Christians left there. And we, can't, we shouldn't take for granted uh, this statement where we can still say in 
the United States of America, God is known. Now, some of the people who know him hate his guts, <laughs> but uh, there's a very strong remnant in this country uh, for which I'm very thankful. His name is great in Israel, in Salem, which is another word for Jerusalem, also in his tabernacle. And his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle. So when you line up your life and align it with God's Word, though sometimes His Word makes no sense in our lives following it, if we simply by faith obey it, what we will find is He will break the arrows of the bows of our enemies. Verse 4, You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of their mighty men have found the use of their hands. So the word sleep here, as it is throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament actually, uh, is synonymous with dead. So when it says they have sunk into their sleep, it means they died. And there was one... Uh, there was one event there in 2 Kings chapter 18 where the Assyrian king came to attack Jerusalem and he surrounded Jerusalem with probably 200,000 or more soldiers, Assyrian soldiers. Assyrians were the, among the most cruelest nation that ever lived. I mean, there's stories about the Assyrians. They used to skin alive their captives. They used to, uh, you know, chop off their heads and, you know, put them around the, uh, the city gates and this type of thing. And that's why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Remember Jonah? God said to Jonah, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He said, forget you. And he took off to Tarshish. People say, oh, what an unspiritual guy. Well, I don't know. Uh, considering all, all the things that, jo that, that, to, that had probably been done to Jonah's very family, possibly. The Assyrians, wicked people. And they surrounded at one point Jerusalem with a couple hundred thousand people. And there was a righteous king, a wonderful king, Hezekiah, who was king at the time. And the general, uh, Sennacherib, uh, went in and with a letter uh, to uh, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah read the letter and it basically said, you know, we're going to wipe you guys out big time. And by the way, you know, you're trusting in God. What happened to the gods of all these other nations we have just completely wiped out? What, what about all those gods? And you're trusting in your God? And Hezekiah took the letter. He opened it up. It was a scroll. He went into the temple. He spread it before the Lord and said, Lord, look at this. It's talking about you. He's your problem, Lord. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, came in, you know, after Hezekiah cried out to the Lord, Isaiah came in and said, you don't have to worry. These guys, these couple hundred thousand troops that are surrounding the city in chariots, these people have wiped out nation after nation after nation after nation. They won't so much as shoot an arrow at the city. It doesn't say what Hezekiah was thinking when he heard that. But I have an educated guess who had a little bit of unbelief when he heard that. But that night, the angel of death went into this Syrian camp and wiped out 185,000 of the men in one night. The rest of the Syrian army got up in the morning, freaked out, and took off back to Nineveh. And that's what, uh, you know, that's, the, that's what this verse may be referring to here where it says in verse 5, the stout-hearted were plundered, they have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. They didn't find the use of their hands because they were dead. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a deep sleep. So, I believe here we have some additional information because I don't believe Second Kings 18 says anything about the horses dying. But uh, 
here's where, did I say deep sleep? It says dead sleep. But apparently, so the horses were wiped out as well. You yourself, verse 7, are to be feared. And, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You cause judgments to be heard from the heaven. The earth feared and was still. Verse 9, then when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Verse 11, Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. So what is the spirit of princes? The spirit of princes is the spirit that says, this land is mine, this, these people are mine. The Bible says God will opposes the proud and exalts the humble. It says He shall cut off the spirit of the princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Psalm 77. I was reading this morning actually about that little subject about having the spirit of a prince, like in a bad way, like it's talking about how shepherds, pastors, need to shepherd the flock of God and not to lord over them. This is speaking to me um, as a pastor. Yet another reminder that pastors should not lord over their people, try to control their people. No, they're the shepherds. They're the ones who die for the sheep. They're there for the sheep. It's not the other way around. And, you know, the Lord purifies His church, but First Peter also says that judgment will begin in the church of God, in the house of God. And it starts right there up at the top. And, you know, from time to time, there's a pastor in a pulpit who's got the spirit of a prince. This church is mine and these people are mine. But God takes them down. He's faithful to do that. Judgment begins in the house of God. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. Psalm 77 says, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and He gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without seeking, and my soul refused to be comforted. Have you ever been in that place in your life where your soul refused to be comforted even after you're crying out to God without ceasing? I remember a season like that in my life where just I was crying out to the Lord and I just was not comforted no matter what I did, no matter how much I cried out, no matter how much I sought Him. I remember opening up to Isaiah chapter 54 and it says this, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystals, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be their peace. It just blew me away. And just comfort, the Lord's comfort just poured into my heart. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. God loves us. He's the God of all comfort. And He comforts us, the Bible says, so that we can comfort others. And that's where the psalmist is right now in Psalms uh, 77. That My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. 
I have considered the days of old, the years of uh, ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast us off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Has His mercy ceased forever? Has His promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His tender mercies? So, I would say this guy is in a downward spiral (laughs) here. And what we can read in the next few verses, Psalm 10 through 12, is what we need to do when we are in that nosedive. We're in that spiral of depression. Which Christians sometimes uh, fall into. It's spiritual warfare. If you're depressed, it means that you should be encouraged because it means that Satan's paying attention to you because you must be doing something in your Christian life that he doesn't like. But here's what you do, verse 10. So he's, he's in the bottom of the barrel here and he says, And I said, this is my anguish, but I will, will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. And so, as hard as it may be, when we're in this downward spiral, we need to remember, and even if we say it out loud, remember the blessings of God. Remember Psalm 68:19 says, He daily loads me with benefits. Now, That's when our eyes are open and we're doing well. We realize that. But when we're in a downward spiral, we need to get back to that place. And sometimes it just means, as we just read, just thanking Him specifically for just surrounding us with blessings. You know, I've been thinking about uh, for the last few months about how and Stephanie and I moved up to to Boston and we moved into Mission Hill and Mission Hill where I live, which is just a few blocks away. Man, it's like living in the dorm room for a dorm room for Northeastern University. I mean it's sixty or seventy percent college students. When you walk around at midnight, when uh, Greg and I walk around Saturday nights at midnight, we pray every Saturday night. Uh there's a constant reminder of who you, who you need to pray for because they, there's just crowds of college students everywhere. And there's like just this last Friday, this wild party next door. It's up midnight. And, and it's so healthy for me because I just, I just remember I, I can't get angry even though the, these 50 people are screaming at the top of their lungs. At, at, actually, it was like 1 in the morning. On Friday, because this is where the Lord Lord knew these people were going to move in next door, and this is part of the mission field that I'm in. But it is kind of tough, though, when you have five kids and all your neighbors are college students, and you know, uh, and my kids have have sort of grown up like this. But uh, you know, about a year ago. The Jacobs moved next door. Now, I have four girls and one boy. They have four girls and one boy. Now, how could this be anything other than the Lord? I, I, please, don't even try to convince me. I mean, there's, I'm, our family's like a freak of nature in that. Five kids? It, you know, in, in the front side of Mission Hill? There's no one like that. Every once in a while, there's a family with one or two kids, you know, uh, that, this type of thing. And then even Scott and Amy are far out with, with three kids. But next door and four daughters like me, the Lord daily loads us with benefits. 
And, you know, my two youngest daughters, they have best friends now, and I don't have to be driving them out to some suburb or whatever to visit with their friends. All they do is say, can I have playtime next door? They're asking me that this afternoon. But that's the Lord. And over time, as you see this in, uh, in your life, and just what a blessing Michael is to me and Julius to Stephanie, they're right next door, and they've gotten to be good friends with Amy and Scott, and just a part of our church community. It's like, wow, <laughs> the Lord, you are so good. And just praising the Lord and doing it specifically, and that's why a broken record here. How many of you even know what a record is? A broken CD, a scratch CD, pretty soon that's going to be like an anachronism. It'll be a broken, what do you call those iPod things? But anyway, do they skip ever, those iPods? Do they skip? So that, that, that illustration is gone forever within 20 years. We'll have, to start saying, we'll have to start saying something different. But keep a journal of what the Lord does in your life. I keep a journal of things such as the Jacobs moving in right next door, that things that just cannot possibly be explained in the natural, you know? And the fact they're Christians in, in, in this church? Wow. Uh, anyway, I mean, I could go on and on about uh, just uh, about these kinds of things and just to go back and, and, and open up your journal and, wow, Lord, you know, pray, praise the Praise you! You you are you you have your markings all over my life. Verse fourteen: You are the God. Rather, verse thirteen: Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. You see what happens to this man. When he just started remembering the specific things that the Lord had done in his life. Look what happens here. What a reversal. I mean, he, he's gone from the first few verses saying, My soul refused to be comforted, verse 2. My hand was stretched out in the night uh, without ceasing. To saying in verse 14, You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. Now that is a mysterious verse. Verse 19. Calvary Chapel, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. What does this verse mean? Your way is in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. Well, let me give it a try. I can't say that this originated with me, but, you know, it, it is true that the footsteps of God, meaning the way God works in one person's life as opposed to the other, it's like when Jesus walked on water, right? He decided that the disciples had been laboring all night in a storm, and he decided on that occasion to walk on water to them. And once he got in the boat, if you tried to look for those footsteps, you wouldn't be able to find them. His footsteps, as it says in verse 19, were not known. Now, where am I going with that? Um, what I believe it may be talking about is the footsteps that God takes you down. He carries you down. He may do it in a completely different way than someone else. Should Christians put their kids in public schools where they are salt and light, where they are learning to fend for themselves and witness 
and stand up for their faith? Or should Christians put their kids in Christian schools where they're protected from a lot of the garbage that in the temptation, frankly, that is in public schools? Should Christians homeschool their kids? And the fact of the matter is a lot of teachers in, in, in Christian schools and a lot of the students in Christian schools, I don't want my kids anywhere near them. <laughs> just like teachers and kids from public schools. Well, so should we just homeschool our kids? And the answer to the question, I believe so strongly, I'm so passionate about this particular subject, is look, the footsteps of God are not known. His way is in the sea. His path on the great waters. You're not going to find the same way for every single family. Because what God wants to do with one family as one set of kids, or even kids within the same family, may be completely different in another family. You know, and nothing gets me so upset to listen to some, I'll be nice, some person, rather than call them a name, get on Christian radio and just bang their fists, you know. How could you ever send your kids to public schools? And, you know, look, it, I know there's so many testimony of kids, who, Christian kids who have gone through public schools and they're all serving the Lord today. My good friend Bob Caldwell in Calvary Chapel, Boise, all four of his kids went through public schools all serving the Lord. Both, both of um, you know, his kids married, um, all of them, pure. You know, they just did, they went right, they, they did things the right way. They were in public schools. Why? Because their parents were pouring their lives into them all along and they were all over their education. But that's not going to work for another family who has a different constitution about them. And their kids have different personality, different gene pool. And sometimes, you know, within the same pam, uh, family. We're homeschooling our two youngest right now. Some of our other kids are uh, in public schools. One of our daughters now is in private school. <laughs> you know, we're all three. We're a three-headed monster in our home. Uh, but, but, you know, the, 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 your footsteps are not known. Your way is in the sea. Your path in the great waters, you know. The ways of the Lord are like deep waters. And, and that's why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so important in our life. We can't be making up wooden ridges rules and apply them to every, every person about these kind of issues. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock. And that's what we can know. That's what we can know for sure. We can sort of write that into the concrete that's the one rule that we know is going to be the case, that God leads his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay. What time is it? Seven fifty-five. So we will end right there because this next psalm is a long psalm. We would be here to 855 uh, if we went through it. So I am going to close there now.